Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thanks uh, very much, uh, Catherine, and uh, it's, it's wonderful to be here uh, this morning uh, in the United States. I'd like to welcome our viewers on both sides of the Atlantic, and we have a, a tremendous uh, program for you today uh, on the fifth anniversary of the 2016 uh, Brexit uh, referendum. And we have an absolutely uh, superb uh, panel for you today. And uh, with a bit of background, uh, on June 23rd, uh, 2016, uh, the British people voted to leave the European Union in an historic referendum that sent shockwaves across the world and against all odds, the Brexiteers triumphed, defying the political elites and media establishment, striking a blow for democracy and self-determination. Five years later, the United Kingdom has completely left the European Union and is once again a truly free, sovereign nation, able to shape its own destiny, control its borders, fully decide its laws and sign its own uh, trade agreements. And today, uh, we are joined by three leaders and founders of the Vote Leave a Brexit campaign, who will share their thoughts on how and why they won and what Brexit means for the future of the United Kingdom, as well as its partnership uh, with the United States. Uh, firstly, we have uh, Douglas uh, Carswell, uh, the president and CEO of the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. Uh, he was also the co-founder of uh, Vote Leave. And secondly, we have uh, Matthew Elliott, uh, Senior Political Advisor at Shaw Capital and Senior Advisor at Engine MHP. Uh, Matthew was the former Chief Executive of, of Vote Leave. And thirdly, we have Lord Hannon of Kingsclear, uh, Vice Chairman and International Ambassador for the UK Conservative Party, co-founder of Vote Leave, uh, member of the House of Lords, and also an old friend of mine from Oral College Oxford, where we both studied modern history, Happy to say that Cecil Rose will not be falling from uh, from Oriel. And uh, I should mention as well that Dan sat as a Conservative member of the European Parliament for for 21 years. We're going to kick off straight into the uh, into the questions. It's going to be a, a fast flowing, free flowing uh, discussion with our with our three uh, panelists. And uh, my first question for the uh, for the panel is. Uh, with regard to the origins of the Vote Leave uh, campaign, and our three panelists uh, were really the, the central three figures uh, in the establishment of Vote Leave, uh, which without a doubt was one of the most successful political campaigns uh, of, the, of the modern era. And so the, the opening question is, how did Vote Leave come together? And could you give us some insights into how it all started and the inspiration for it. I'm going to ask uh, Dan Hannon, Lord Hannon, to uh, to to go first in responding to this opening uh, question. Well, thank you very much, Niall. Lovely to see you again, and welcome everybody. Uh, to answer that question, I think I need to go back to how Euroscepticism began. We had a referendum in 1975, and there was a two-to-one vote to stay in what was then called the European Economic Community, and that was it. You know, there, there was no continuity leave campaign after that. People accepted the result. Euroscepticism, to the extent it existed at all, flickered very softly on the uttermost fringes of the far left. 
What changed? What changed was that in the early 90s, the European Economic Community became the European Union. They extended its jurisdiction into a number of fields that had nothing to do with economics at all, uh, began to take a role in cultural policy, immigration policy, foreign policy, civil justice, criminal justice. And it was suddenly clear that this was no longer a club of nations. This was no longer a trade bloc. There was never really any, any problem with that, but that this was a, a country in the making, uh, giving itself all of the attributes and trappings of statehood. And that was the beginning of, of the movement for what we now call Brexit, starting really around about 1992 when the Maastricht Treaty came into effect. Now, for a long time, we were focused on trying to get back to a kind of pre-Maastricht relationship. It became clear that that wasn't going to happen. It became clear it was never going to be on offer. And uh, when the European constitution was defeated in referendums in France and the Netherlands and then imposed anyway, I and I think most British Eurosceptics thought, well, that's it. The, the only uh, issue now is a referendum on leaving. So we put our effort into that. When David Cameron was elected in 2010, we saw an opportunity. Uh, I remember recruiting Matthew in 2012, summer of 2012, and saying, you are going to be the man who's going to lead the eventual Leave campaign. And it was, it was a hell of an ask because Matthew had a serious, well-paid job at that time. Nobody thought that the Leave campaign could win. It wasn't even called that then. No one even thought it was going to happen yet. Uh, but I think Matthew sensed, as Douglas did and as others, that if not us, who? And if not now, when? And so we, we put together what first became a kind of shell operation called Business for Britain that then became Vote Leave and uh, that Matthew led to victory against all the odds against all the broadcasters, all the leaders of all the political parties, every bank, every big business, every government from around the world that David Cameron could call in a favor from, including Barack Obama. And on the, the 23rd of June, 2016, I felt so proud of the morning of the 24th, the British people politely disregarded all of the bullying and the hectoring and the threats, did what they knew to be the right thing and were thoroughly vindicated because all of the economic uh, prognostications of disaster spectacularly failed to materialize. And, and that was, uh, you know, it was one of the many occasions, uh, like 1940, when, when ordinary people stood by Churchill against the elites, or, or 1979, when they picked Margaret Thatcher, it was one of those many moments when the masses proved much wiser than the experts. Thank you very much, uh, Dan, for those excellent insights. and. Uh, I'd like to um, to ask uh, Matthew to also uh, jump in on this question. And, and Matthew, you had a tremendous experience of running a series of successful campaigns before uh, the vote, mm. the vote leave campaign. Uh, could you get, share with us your insights on the origins of vote leave and what drove you to uh, to uh, accept the invitation to become a chief executive officer of vote? Well, I'll add to what Dan says, because he's really told the story already. But um, an, another element of the story is the fact that in um, 2011, um, the UK had a referendum on changing Britain's voting system uh, to a, a system called the alternative vote. And um, I was in charge of that campaign. We turned around um, a two to one uh, majority of favour of electoral reform into being two to one against. And so the lessons we learned from that campaign were 
um, crucial to actually winning the Brexit vote in 2016, uh, most clearly in terms of building a broad coalition and anchoring ourselves in the uh, centre, in the sort of mainstream of um, political debate. So really, um, I think you had the Eurozone crisis in um, 2011, things were bubbling up in 2012, like Dan says. Um, in 2013, David Cameron did his Bloomberg speech where he announced this process of uh, renegotiation followed by a referendum. And it was very clear at that point when Business for Britain set up that we needed that um, you know, mainstream group anchored in the mainstream and having Dan there, having Douglas there, having um, hundreds, then over a thousand business leaders involved in the campaign as well, really laid those foundations for vote leave. And I think it's um, correct to say that without Business of Britain, had that not been set up, had that organisation not been in place in 2015 after the general election, when the referendum was game on for the following year, uh, we wouldn't have won. We needed that foundation of Business of Britain to win vote leave. And Matthew, when, when you were thinking about taking on the uh, uh, the job of um, of chief executive officer, were you were you confident in your heart that the victory could be uh, could be achieved against against all odds? I mean, this this was a you know this was a very courageous move by uh, mm. Brexiteers to establish the, the vote leave uh, campaign at a time when uh, you know you had the entire uh, you know, practically political media establishment you know against you. Um, did you have any doubts at all? Uh, Matthew, when, when you decided to accept that, accept that job? I, there were doubts about the outcome because it was unclear what would happen with this renegotiation. Um, what often happened with the polling in um, you know, 2013, 2014, they'd have two questions. The first one would be, would you like Britain to remain in the EU or leave the EU? And at that point, you know, it used to be quite finely balanced between the two, bounced around a lot, but more or less half and half. But then they often asked a supplementary question, which is, you know, if David Cameron renegotiates Britain's deal uh, with the EU, comes back with a new deal, which is better for the UK, how will you then vote? And then it would split uh, perhaps more two to one in favour of remaining in the EU. So it's all really hinged on the idea of how much David Cameron will be able to uh, change Britain's relationship. But I think we all knew and... Um, uh, I'd actually worked on the uh, European Convention on the Future of Europe as a, a lowly intern back in the early 2000s. Um, the EU isn't there to give away powers. There's no, it's not, there's no reverse ratchet, if you like. With every successive treaty, more and more power went from the member states to the EU. And the idea they were going to give any back just wasn't going to happen. And yeah. indeed, yeah. when they didn't give power back, when David Cameron wasn't successful in his renegotiation, that was a crucial moment because... David Cameron himself had said Britain would be better off out and outside an unreformed EU. He hadn't managed to reform the EU. He hadn't brought any powers back. That was widely acknowledged across the board. So when that happened in the February of um, 2016, we then had the solid foundation for um, a great campaign. Yes. Uh, now, when Douglas, I, I'm going to uh, ask you to uh, to jump in now as well, and, and also to talk. Yeah. A bit about the um, uh, the the rival campaign headed by by Nigel Farage and how that uh, you know how the um, you know how the dynamic worked between Vote Leave and the and the Farage uh, Brexit campaign. Yeah, 
I mean, over the past five years, I've met lots and lots of people who all apparently had a key role in, in Brexit. I can't always recall coming across them before the referendum, um, but two people who I undoubtedly did come across and who were absolutely central to the success are two of the people on your screen, uh, Matt and Dan. I, I remember actually a meeting, it was probably in 2012, it may even have been before then, with um, Matt and Dan, and Dan saying, look, it's, it's, it's up to us. It's, there is no other group. It is the people around this table, um, and it's on us to make sure that we have a campaign. Now, Matt um, then went and did something very clever. We, we had a pot of money um, to do some opinion group testing and some focus group testing. And as I recall, um, Matt then decided to hire someone called Dom Cummings to look at what it was that undecided opinion thought about the issue and to base the campaign based on trying to win over the undecided. Now, I mentioned this not simply to highlight the fact that actually Matt was one of the chief architects of a victory, um, sometimes claimed by others, but I, I think it's also really important that from the get-go, we understood that our strategy had to be aimed at people who hadn't been convinced by 20 years of Eurosceptic noise. And, and that really brings me on to the differences between our approach and, and Nigel's approach. Nigel's campaign team, I think it's fair to say, um, was not entirely triumphant in trying to win seats in places like Thanet, in, in parliamentary elections. Um, and I don't think they would have been able to win a, a binary um, referendum by saying things that appealed to committed Eurosceptics. So there was a, a fundamentally irreconcilable difference of strategy from the, from the outset. We were aimed at getting 50% plus one, and boy, we came frighteningly close to that. Their strategy seemed to be more about trying to excite um, the 20 to 30% of the population who are already committed outers. So I, I think to understand the real differences between our approach and um, the other side's approach, you need to recognize that it wasn't about personality. It was fundamentally about strategy. And I, I think had our strategy not prevailed, we would not have voted to leave. In fact, I, I suspect the Cameroons and the Remainers in number 10 were hoping and thinking particularly at the time of Bloomberg when they conceded a referendum, that the referendum Eurosceptic side would be defined by some of the more shrill and certain and less appealing voices. So I think, I think you know, it, it's, it's not only the Remain campaign we had to beat, it was um, those who would define Euroscepticism as something other than an optimistic, uh, forward-looking, um, liberalizing in the British sense of the term, force for good. Yes, uh, excellent points there, uh, Douglas. And it was remarkable how just how optimistic the, the Vote Leave uh, campaign uh, was at, at every stage. And, and the message was, was an extremely positive uh, message. And uh, much like, uh, you know, the, the message of, of Margaret Thatcher, actually, back in, back in the 1970s. And, you know, her, her vision of a, of a future free Britain, actually, free to the shackles of, of socialism. And, uh, and Lady Thatcher, of course, was, uh, was very influential as well, I think, in shaping the uh, the subsequent vision of the Brexiteers, especially through uh, Statecraft, her final book, where she she wrote about the need for Britain to think about leaving the European Union, uh, and uh, that was published in uh, in 2002. Uh, and um, on the the subject of uh, of, of Dominic uh, Cummings, just how essential was was Dominic's role as campaign director to uh, to the Vote Leave uh, victory? And and Dominic, of course, uh, is it went on to become the, uh, the 
the chief advisor to uh, to the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Uh, if I could uh, throw that over to um, perhaps uh, Matthew, would you like to to jump in on that, and then then also uh, Dan as well? Could you give us your insights also? Sure. Um, you know, Don was you know very important. You know, he have he's very very good at um, market research. He's great at sort of finding out uh, what the public are thinking. You know, working out a strategy uh, based on that. Um, he was great in terms of building. Um, a very cohesive campaign team, a core campaign team around him, which is crucial, of course, in any campaign. You need that war room of people to be able to actually uh, you know, fight the campaign from the centre and fight the, the media battle in particular. Uh, but there are, of course, many other great people in the campaign as well. We have people who brought, uh, uh, brought in um, you know, all the grassroots. We had the, by far the best grassroots campaign uh, of the two sides. We had people up and down the country every weekend delivering leaflets, you know, having meetings, um, you know, uh, having debates. And that was a key element of the campaign as well. So, yes, he played a really important role, but really the campaign was about the core campaign, yes, but also the wider people involved, the business leaders who were willing to make the economic case, the people on the grassroots willing to live, deliver the leaflets. All those other people involved as well were part of the campaign. And... Uh... In addition to, to Dominic, of course, I mean, Boris Johnson played a, a hugely important role in that in, in that campaign as, as well. Uh, and uh, Dan, uh, could you talk about the importance, the Boris factor, uh, in uh, in the vote leave uh, victory? And was it um, by was it was it a definite that Boris was going to jump in on the vote leave uh, side? If you could give some insights on on that, uh, Dan, and how how Boris came to join the the vote leave campaign. Well, Boris, I know, was wavering. There is a a certain sort of sneering uh, Remainer view that he was being purely cynical, or he never expected us to win, and it was all about positioning. I can tell you for a fact that all the way through 2015 and 2016, he was on the fence because I was constantly trying to convince him, as others were. And he was particularly hung up on the question of sovereignty. If there had been a way of addressing the issue of ultimate legal jurisdiction, a way of saying that EU law should not override British law automatically, a way of saying that EU directives and regulations would be treated as advisory pending an implementing decision by Parliament, I think that would have convinced him. But of course, the EU did not give an inch. I mean, one of the, the, the points that can't be stressed too much because the UK media and indeed the international media just never wants to consider it, is the extraordinary inflexibility of Brussels in the renegotiation period. I think there can be little doubt that had David Cameron come back with any significant retrieval of power, anything, you know, one thing, fisheries, industrial, I don't know, it doesn't matter. One thing that would have been enough, enough to say, look, I've established the principle now that powers can come down as well as going up. Who can doubt that he would have won? But it wouldn't. And, I, and that created a mood of, well, you know, if this is how you're treating us now before we've even voted, you know, uh, how will you treat us if we are foolish enough to vote remains. So that was the context. And that was, I think, what, what brought Boris off the fence on our side. Now, how significant was he? Hugely significant, because there is no more optimistic politician in discovered space. You know, in a world full of Eeyores, he is Tigger. Uh, he has this fantastic ability to cheer people up. He has actually what, what I can only really call leadership. He makes people believe 
that there is a better future. And as Douglas said a moment ago, it was critical for us to convey a sense of a warmer and sunnier tomorrow in order to carry the vote. Again, if you listen only to the Remainers, if you if your sources of media were the BBC, The Economist, The Financial Times, or God help us, The New York Times, you would have the impression that this was a nativist vote, a protectionist vote, backward-looking, nostalgic, and fundamentally xenophobic. Believe me when I tell you, if that had been our campaign, we would have been absolutely sorted. We would have struggled to get above 25% of the vote. And that was the, the real danger of the, the alternative uh, leave.eu uh, operation. We knew that we had to, to speak to and for that big chunk of undecided opinion, probably about a third of the electorate, if I remember the opinion polls when we started, who didn't like Brussels, who thought that it was undemocratic, corrupt, or, you know, lordly, imperious, but who were change averse, who were worried about disruption. We had to reassure them that we had a plan for a better tomorrow. And, and, and that's often those people didn't like Eurosceptics. They were very good. Sorry, Douglas. So often such people didn't particularly like traditional Eurosceptics. That was our, our dilemma. How do you reach those people in new ways? You need new people and new messages. Yeah, yeah which goes. We did that. And, and actually, Matt had a fantastic uh, um, uh, strategy for, for, for reaching them. But it, it's worth just stressing five years on that we were right. You know, th this wasn't some contrary where we said, don't worry, it'll be all all right. And then, it, you know, if you compare what we were saying would happen with what the Remain side said would happen, you know, and you look to, well, I mean, obviously the coronavirus is, and the lockdowns have changed, but if you look at any of the, 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 the time, six months after, a year after, two years after the vote, up until the lockdowns, we were right. You know, the other side said that unemployment would rise by half a million. It fell by half a million. They said that the stock exchange would collapse. It, they said that house prices would collapse. They rose. They said that manufacturing would disappear. It boomed. They said that exports no. would, would they went up uh, you know, on every metric. We, we grew yeah. faster and more impressively than the Eurozone. So, so when we reassured that middle third, the kind of worried Eurosceptics, the people who, who were uh, anxious about their pensions and their mortgages, but who didn't like Brussels, and we convinced them that it would be all right and that, that, that you know, a country that gets independence will flourish, we were telling them the truth, and that was vindicated by what happened afterwards. Excellent point, Stan. And uh, Douglas, um, and just actually moving to uh, the next question about about the the victory, the Brexit victory. Uh, Douglas, um, in the minds of, of British voters, uh, and you spent many years as a member of Parliament, you fought many elections. Uh, in in your view, what were the the crucial two or three factors that um, influenced uh, the British public to vote to leave the, the European Union in this historic 52 to 48 uh, vote? I, I think a large part of it was this notion of control, this idea that power and decision-making authority was in the hands of remote and unaccountable officials. Um, I remember going to Aston in Birmingham um, and a rock-solidly traditional Labour voting area and being very, very, very struck, I, I simply didn't need to persuade anyone. These are poor, poor Britons, often they were from minority backgrounds. 
I, I didn't need to engage in any persuasive discussions. People would come up and say that they were supporting our campaign and it was against them and they. There was a sense that you know, politics had become a stitch up. And I think there was a, a real feeling that this was the opportunity for, for ordinary people to have a say on an issue. Yeah, they didn't understand the nuances. They didn't follow the discussions and the debates, but they had a lot of common sense and they knew the fundamentals, which is that a group of politicians had passed power away and it had left people powerless. And this feeling of powerlessness, um, one of the ways that manifested itself was in the debate about immigration. I, I don't think people were anti-immigration. I think people were anti not having control over immigration and subsequent um, developments in UK politics have borne that out. Um, but this whole idea that you know we were handing over money that we could better spend on our own public services. This whole notion of control was incredibly powerful. Now, people often try to portray the uh, Eurosceptic movement as being backward looking and atavistic. My hunch throughout was that actually digital technology gives people a sense of control in their day-to-day -day life. They choose the music and the, 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 the shopping they want to do right away. So the idea that people shouldn't have control becomes more and more intolerable. So I, I actually think there was a, a huge upswell in, in the popular mood in the country, this idea that we should take back control. We should, irrespective of how we vote in general elections, be able to choose a government with whom ultimate responsibility lies. And I, I think that was the driving force behind our success. It explains why we did very well in traditional Labour voting areas and very well in traditional Tory voting areas. It was a, a common uh, uh, feeling of resentment Interestingly, the one group of people who, who, who tended not to be so Eurosceptic tended to be people who were, who were fairly well off, who were fairly privileged and from prosperous socioeconomic backgrounds. And I, I think that, again, is, is, is quite telling. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think this feeling of control was absolutely paramount in, in all its different manifestations. That, that was the driving force behind our success. Yeah, thank you. Can I add one point to that? And that yes. is that um, not only did the referendum lead to Britain leaving the EU, but also it's fundamentally recast the, the UK politics overall. You know, Boris Johnson now enjoys a majority of um, 80 in the House of Commons, a very strong majority, which was seen through probably two terms as Prime Minister, um, if not more. Um, thanks to the Brexit referendum, it recast how British politics is. Had we um, lost the referendum, um, I'm fairly sure that the centre-right would have uh, split. And it would now be Labour in power as the dominant force. So I think there's a wider political implication to what happened as well. Yeah, and what, what a truly frightening prospect of a you know a Jeremy Corbyn-style Labour government. Uh, you know that would have been an absolute nightmare. Uh, and uh, on the issue of take back control, and I, and I recall um, uh, on, on the uh, the the morning of the referendum results, um, uh, I had the the fortune of being at the Vote Leave headquarters with Sri and David Smith and and uh, Dan. You gave a, a rousing Henry V uh, speech there, uh, and and the room was was full of Vote Leave uh, campaigners. Dominic Cummings, uh, at the point of victory, jumped on uh, the central uh, table, uh, punched through the the ceiling, and I think a piece of the ceiling actually fell down. Onto the uh, onto the table uh, below, and and basically Dominic, uh, you know, just repeated uh, take back control, you know, uh, a number of times, and and he, he said, you know, to the the young campaigners that he said, this is your victory, you you've won this, uh, and 
the take back control slogan, which was incredibly successful. Um, what, what's the origin of that? And, uh, uh, you know, who, who thought of it? Was, was it Dominic's idea? And uh, uh, Matthew or, or, or Dan, could, could, you, could you respond to that? So we um, commissioned Dom to do a series of focus groups and polling right after the 2014 European elections to really find out what was motivating people and what their thinking was on the European issue um, at that point. And that really informed how Vote Leave was set up and the strategy around it. And the original slogan was actually take control, uh, but then it morphed into take back control um, after a little while. But this whole idea of, um, you know, really it's about freedom, it's about sovereignty, but how do you express that message in a way in which people can really understand it's about taking back control. That's the language of a, of a campaign and it really caught people's attention. And the fact that David Cameron had failed to make any change for his relationship with the EU showed how important it was to take back control, take back control of the levers of power. And the scene you witnessed there, Niall, summarises Vote Leave. I, I was out making speeches, Dominic was going around punching people and things, and Matthew was the one behind the scenes actually doing all the work. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, Ma uh, Matthew, you were in Manchester that, that evening, if I'm not uh, mis mistaken. Uh, and uh, um, I, I'm going to shift gears a bit now to um, to Brexit and what it means for uh, for the future of the US-UK special relationship, for the future of Europe as well, what it means for the future of the United Kingdom. Uh, but uh, kicking off with, with Brexit and, and the United States and Needless to say, you know, Brexit has been a cause very close to the hearts of, of US conservatives for many years. And the Heritage Foundation has been the, the leading voice in Washington in support of, of Brexit. Uh, and, and Lady Thatcher set up the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom in 2005, uh, in part to uh, uh, help support the, uh, the case for, uh, for Britain leaving the European Union. It was her, it was her vision. Uh, that uh, the UK should be outside of the EU, and there's been a lot of, uh, you know, discussion debate over, over Margaret Thatcher's views. But I can state, state categorically that Margaret Thatcher believed that Britain would be far better off outside of the European Union. That was her view, and she also made that clear in in Statecraft as well in her her final book. Uh, and so the Margaret Thatcher Centre for Freedom certainly has been at, at the heart of uh, shaping thinking in in the United States on uh, on Brexit. And um, what is the future of, of the US-UK special relationship in, in the Brexit uh, era? Uh, and I'm going to um, throw that question out to, uh, to, to Dan Hannan. Uh, Dan, you've, you've spent a lot, of, a lot of time, of course, in the United States uh, over the course of, of the last few, few decades. You've, you've visited the US on multiple occasions. You've given a large number of speeches, including many speeches at, at Heritage. What, what do you think the outlook is in the long run for the special relationship uh, in the uh, in the Brexit uh, era? Yeah, well, thank you very much. I, I think that had we not been in the European Union, we would have signed a very ambitious and comprehensive free trade agreement with the United States at least 30 years ago. I don't think that's a particularly contentious thing to say. If you, if you look at the, the foundational economics, you know, a million Brits turn up to work every day for US-owned companies, million Americans every day punch into work for, for British-owned companies. We are each other's biggest investors. We're each, each other's biggest traders, uh, resting on all the obvious affinities of language, common law, 
accountancy system, regulatory models, interoperability. We haven't been able to have a trade deal because the EU controls our trade. And what I really hope is that we can seal a, a relationship that remains strong in, in diplomacy, uh, defense, uh, sharing of intelligence and technology, even of nuclear technology, with something that will really lift people's standard of living. And that's the big prize. Now, you will remember, uh, Niall, that in 2018, Heritage, which, as you say, was always taking the lead on Brexit issues, uh, sat around the table with a number of other think tanks, uh, British and American, to, to draw up what we thought would be the ideal US-UK free trade agreement. Um, do you know, one of the big, possibly the fiercest argument I've ever had with Douglas there uh, was over that great 1979 film, The Warriors, which he thinks is a pile of pants and I thought was a great uh, uh, cinematic experience. And, and, and those who know the film will remember the scene where Cyrus is making the speech with all the different gangs. You know, we've got the, the Jones Street boys next to the Saracens and we've got the Moon Runners next to the, the you know, whatever, the Van Cortel Rangers. It was like that. We had Heritage next to the AEI, you know, the Competitive Enterprise Institute next to the Cato Institute, etc. And we got around the table oval-shaped table. We, we, we treated it as, as a series of trade talks in London and in DC, and we produced what I reckon is the ultimate in, 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 a, in a free trade agreement. It basically says whatever is legal in your country should be legal in our country and vice versa, and this should apply to goods and services and professional qualifications. It should cover free movement of labor, it should cover government procurement, the works. Now, you know, we live in an imperfect world. Uh, uh, an Aristotelian sublunary world. We're not, we, we, perfection doesn't happen, at least not in this life, right? So we're not going to get 100% of that deal. But imagine if Catherine Tai and Liz Truss, her British counterpart, came back with something that gave us 70% of that deal. Wouldn't that be pretty amazing? And wouldn't that lift not just living standards in the US and in Britain, but actually for the whole world? Because when you get a, a big, a uh, trade deal like that between the world's biggest economy and its fifth biggest economy, there are benign knock-on effects for everyone else. And wouldn't we be setting up an alternative model to the highly regulated deregist models favoured in Brussels and in Beijing that all three trading countries could rally to? So we would be doing something that was genuinely in the interests of a, a, a more secure and prosperous global order. Uh, I'd hoped we'd been able we'd be able to get that done under the previous administration. It had some objections. Uh, this administration brings a different set of objections, but the fundamentals are still there. Uh, when the two leaders met, uh, uh, Britain was Joe Biden's first port of call uh, as uh, since the election, and they uh, Boris Johnson and Joe Biden signed on the 80th anniversary a new Atlantic Charter, recalling the charter agreed by a previous Democratic president and a previous Conservative Prime Minister uh, in 1941. And I think that that Anglo-American relationship has served to keep the world freer and safer and richer, and we're not done yet. Yeah, tremendous points there, there Dan. Uh, and uh, and Doug, Douglas, I'd also like to uh, bring you in on this, on this question. Yeah, you, you're here in the United States now, and, and I hope you've settled in well in, in Mississippi, uh, uh, Douglas. Uh, and, uh, and and you've you've also uh, written a lot about prospects for a US-UK free trade agreement. 
Um, what do you think the outlook is for a US-UK FTA under the, the Biden administration? I'm, I'm so pro-America and so pro-liberty. I've moved to America to work for a liberty movement think tank. It's, it's wonderful to be here. But, you know, I, I think Dan is absolutely right. Um, it's not just in Britain's interests that we have a bold and comprehensive trade deal with America. It'd be great for America. In, and I think it would be good for the West and the free world. I think the chances are good. Um, I, I think um, politically, perhaps, the current administration has been a little slower, um, but I don't think we should be too disheartened by that. I think it's it, it, so obvious, it makes such good sense. I think whoever's in charge is gonna end up seeing the advantages in a, in a free trade deal. Look, in the United States, ordinary folk have a standard of living that is almost unequaled in any large country in the world. A free trade deal would give British consumers access to those wonderful deals. It would also give UK companies access to one of the biggest markets in the world. Imagine if you're a British uh, producer, I don't know, uh, foodstuff or, or, or whatever. If you could sell into California in the same terms you could sell to Croydon, um, you would suddenly find a potential huge advantage. So, I mean, I, I think the arguments in favor of a, a deal are, are, are pretty overwhelming. I think fundamentally we've got to recognize Brexit itself was not enough. Leaving the European Union legalistically was not enough. We need a realignment. We need a realignment away from the uh, Franco-German model of uh, regulation. If we leave the European Union but don't realign ourselves in regulatory and legal terms, we will follow the European bloc um, on its downward trajectory towards becoming a 21st century museum, a sort of giant version of Venice, a once great State that is better known for its, its past achievements. Europe, I think, is on that downward trajectory. We need to break free from its destructive regulatory orbit if we are to make sure that we prosper. If our children are going to prosper, it will be by selling the tens of millions of middle-class Indians and Brazilians and Americans and people living in the new world, things, goods and services they want. And that can only be achieved by regulatory realignment, getting rid of a lot of the regulations on everything from vacuum cleaners to uh, diesel engines. We find that actually being in the European Union meant we followed regulations in the interests of certain corporate vested interests in France and Germany. We, it's imperative that we strike trade deals that allow us to ditch that and trade freely with the world. Uh, tremendous points there, there Douglas. And, uh, and Matthew, a, a question a few. In relation to the United States, um, former President or then President Barack Obama uh, intervened directly ahead of the, uh, the the 2016 referendum, warning the British people they would be back at the back of the queue uh, for a trade agreement uh, if they dared to vote uh, to to leave the the European Union. How helpful actually was was Obama's intervention for the vote leave uh, uh, campaign, and uh, also in addition. So Obama's intervention was that at the behest of of David Cameron and the Cameron uh, government, or was the initiative, do you think, coming from from the U.S. side uh, on this? I think it was at the initiative of um, David Cameron, number ten. Of course, um, Obama was um, a hugely popular president in the U.K. Uh, with U.K. people, and I thought they thought that would be the the trump card, if you like. They'd had various heads of government from across the world. Um, saying that Britain should stay in the EU, they had heads of business, what have you, 
so we should stay in and they thought Obama would be the icy on the cake if you like but really it uh, backfired when he made that intervention people thought you know hang on a second you know in the UK we you know stood shoulder to shoulder with the US um, on so many uh, different wars we're massively integrated economically as Dan said um, you know how dare he say we sent to the back of the queue so it really did um, backfire I just want to build on one point that um, Douglas made about the importance of the regulatory environment. And um, I think it's been quite telling, actually, in the response to um, COVID and the development of the vaccine. Isn't it interesting that basically it was, it's been UK pharmaceutical companies and US pharmaceutical companies who've led the way in terms of developing the vaccine for COVID? And the EU didn't get anywhere. They were way behind the curve. They couldn't get together to develop a vaccine. None of the pharma companies on the EU uh, did so. So that's a very practical example that even now already we're having very fundamental practical benefits from leaving the EU. Excellent point, sir, Matthew. And uh, Dan, uh, a question for you um, with regard to US presidential interventions. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago ahead of the G7 summit, we had an extraordinary intervention by the Biden administration, uh, which was reported in both the Times and the Telegraph in, in London, uh, and it was revealed uh, that the charged affair in uh, in London, I think Yale uh, Lampert is her name, the senior US diplomat in London, uh, met with uh, Lord Frost and with senior uh, British uh, officials to issue uh, a, a sort of diplomatic dressing down and a warning over the Northern Ireland uh, protocol. Uh, and this, this struck me as, as an extraordinary intervention by uh, a US uh, presidency, uh, not dissimilar from the, the Obama intervention uh, back ahead of the, uh, the 2016 uh, re referendum. Uh, could you give us your, your thoughts on, on this and um, wh whether you think that this is going to um, uh, cause tensions in the relationship between the Boris Johnson uh, government and the, and the Biden administration. Also, what does it say about the, the Biden administration's mindset uh, with regard to lecturing the, the British uh, government? If you don't mind, I'll, I'll, make a, 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 I'll answer in more general terms about the protocol, not because I want to dodge the, the, the question, but because I think there is some dispute about what happened. Uh, there is some question, depending on whom you listen to in the Biden administration, over uh, at what level was this sanction? Was it the Chargée d'Affaires on her own initiative? There's also some question about whether there was a uh, an equivalent note, uh, as it were, delivered to the EU. And so I don't know that. Uh, only the people in the in the State Department uh, involved with it know the answer to that. Um, but if I may, let me take this opportunity to say something about what is in dispute here. To uh, American viewers. Um, because again, if, if you were following the New York Times, you, you might think that this was about some attempt by Britain to, to build a, a border uh, on the island of Ireland. And it cannot be stressed too often that that's just that that, that was never on anyone's agenda. You know, we, we, we've had a common travel area with the Irish Republic since 1921. That's not going to change. In fact, the only reason we had a goods border, interestingly, I, I'm, I'm reading at the moment a, a history of the events of 100 years ago. We're kind of living, reliving the partition in real time, uh, was because uh, Irish Republicans insisted on putting one in. Right? It was the, the British government said, no, no, we don't want a border. We want to have a really close relationship with you. And they said, no, we're a sovereign country. We need a customs border. So that's a, that it, it, but it was only ever a border for goods. It was never. 
uh, a, a border for people. Now, when we left the European Union, the issue of people, just, as I say, didn't arise. Uh, we, have, we have a common travel zone that has existed for 100 years. It covers the UK and the Republic of Ireland that are in the EU, the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man that are not in the EU. It's never been an issue. The question is, is there a theoretical possibility that some, let's say Britain imported uh, Californian wine tariff-free, the EU continues to charge a tariff on Californian wine, might some enterprising uh, wine trader smuggle wine, drive it across the Irish border and then sell it, you know, tariff-free in the EU, giving himself competitive advantage. This is what the, the, the row is about. And when you grasp that, you realize how absurd it is because, you know, th this is not the 19th century where, where you have sort of, uh, you know, mustachioed customs officers with great peaked caps opening all the bags at the border. These days, customs declarations are done online and in advance. And we have the technology to prevent leakage. We have a very, we could simply have a treaty that says we will uh, undertake not to allow anything to cross the border that, that you would find illegal. Well, simple as that, right? But the EU isn't doing that because they see this as a pressure point. They see this as an opportunity to tighten the screw in the hope that we'll say, oh, do you know what? We will follow all of your standards in perpetuity. And then you won't need a border because we'll have just agreed to follow all of your uh, regulatory standards, particularly on, on food and, and veterinary checks. Well. Of course, that would mean that we then couldn't do the kind of deal we want to do with the United States, which is what the EU's game is all along, right? So when people say, oh, it would be nice if Brussels were a bit more reasonable, they are spectacularly missing the point. Brussels has no interest in being reasonable. They, uh, they, the last thing they want to do is to loosen the corset. They want to, to uh, exert as much pressure as possible. But I have to say, because e even now there'll be people saying, well, so what's the row about? I thought this was about a border. Look, no Irish government is going to build a border on their side of the line. We have been absolutely clear all the way through that we will not put any new infrastructure on our side of the line, right? So if we're not going to build it and the Irish are not going to build it, who's going to build it? Are the Mexicans going to pay for it? I mean, you know, it's, it is a, it's a complete <laughs> absurdity. So, uh, you know, we would like to have the closest relations possible with the Republic of Ireland. That's been our policy. And you know, do you know why? Because there isn't a town in Great Britain. There is barely a street in Great Britain. There's barely a family in Great Britain that doesn't have some connection with Ireland, including mine, right? So we, we of course, we want to have a, a, the, 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 the most prosperous and, uh, and stable neighbor, and we want to have the closest possible relations with it. I'm afraid that the EU is now using Ireland as a way of trying to exert pressure on the UK not to diverge and not to have an independent trade policy. And that's not something that we can accept. And it's, it's a position, I think, uh, if you if you listen carefully to how he's talking, that the, the Irish Prime Minister is also finding deeply uncomfortable. Uh, great insights there on the Northern Ireland issue, uh, Dan, and, and a very important message, I think, for US politicians here to uh, to hear as well. And uh, we, we have about... Uh, 10 more minutes um, available, if that works for all of all of the panelists, if you're able to stay on. Uh, we do have quite a lot of uh, questions from, from our online audience. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I'm going to ask a, a couple of questions about the future of, of Europe. But before I do that, 
Douglas, did you want to respond at all um, as as a uh, you know as a head of a, a U.S. Uh, think tank uh, to you know to Biden's uh, or the Biden administration's recent intervention uh, ahead of the the G7 uh, summit? Um, not 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 really. I think I mean I think we sort of covered this ground. I, I think it's unfortunate that. Um, there are still people in the Obama administration in its current guise. The, the, some people refer to this as a lot of the, the, the old Obama crowd back in office in D.C., and I think that's a pretty perceptive point. You know, the Obama administration was never pro-Brexit. We, we heard about Cameron managing to get Obama to make an intervention during the referendum. And I think there are still people in this sort of Obama administration, Mark II, who frankly wish the whole thing had gone away, and now it hasn't gone away they 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 don't look sympathetically at it, but I don't think we should over 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 egg this. Whoever is in the White House, whoever is in running the State Department, it's in our interests as Brits, uh, and it's in the United Kingdom's interest to have close relations. It's going to be in their interests, I think, to to make a success of Britain's post-Brexit arrangements and relationship with Europe. And I, I think common sense will prevail. I think a lot of this stuff is is. These are teasing problems of a new administration. I'm I'm pretty optimistic. I I think the this administration will end up having to do the right thing, um, and I, I I don't think we should we should worry too much about it. Well, I, I hope uh, certainly that the uh, the Biden administration embraces Brexit rather than fight fights against it, and we'll have to have to see uh, you know how that transpires in the, in the course of the next three and a half years and. Um, and uh, a question uh, for, uh, for all three uh, panelists uh, with regard to the future of uh, of Europe and and what Brexit means for the, for the future of Europe. And uh, I'm going to throw that firstly to uh, to Matthew uh, as the uh, former chief executive officer of, of Vote Leave. Do you think the Vote Leave uh, victory? Uh, which really, in many respects, was a was a political earthquake, not not just the UK but the whole of whole of Europe. Um, do you think the the Brexit victory is going to uh, lead to similar campaigns in other European uh, countries? And I, I, a lot of people, uh, you know, ask me that that question, and I like to ask that that to you as someone who was really at the very heart of things in the Vote Leave campaign. Mm. I think what people are really sitting up about across um, Europe is the fact that um, Brexit was very different to how it's portrayed in their countries. As um, I think it was Douglas said earlier, it was portrayed in the international media and some of the UK media as being a very inward looking nativist project, pulling up the drawbridge, Britain you know, isolating itself from the world. And I think as people see that Brexit is actually really about Britain playing a bigger role in the world, um, but as an independent country, you know, so still keen to work with NATO, the UN, still keen to have free trade deals with countries, still willing to work on a bilateral, multilateral basis with other countries, you know, where our sovereign interests um, require it. When they start seeing that, when they start seeing the prosperity that will come from Brexit, from all those trade deals, I can see other countries actually thinking, actually, it's a good way forward. But we're some way from that, but uh, people are sitting up and seeing how things like the vaccine program I mentioned before had been a great benefit, a great boost from Brexit. Now, now my, my, my hunch, if yeah. I can jump in here, is yes, I, yeah. I think there will long be something called the European Union in, in sort of 
um, in, in Europe. And it will be centered on France and Germany. And I think it will persist for a, a, a tragically long time. And I think this is because of what you might call the Europe's political Habsburg tradition of um, you know, a, a, an imperial elite presiding over a, a mass of different nations. And I think that Habsburg tradition will sadly persist. However, I think that you're likely to see the Scandinavian part of Europe in particular and some of the peripheries realign themselves. Scandinavia is already half out. I mean, Iceland's out, Norway's out. Um, Denmark and Sweden are not in the euro. I suspect that you will see in the next 10 or 20 years a realignment of the Scandinavian countries. And I think this is a very good thing because I, I think actually it's in our interests as the United Kingdom to have really close ties with, with Scandinavia. Some people would say we, we are in fact a Scandinavian country. Um, and you know I think we, we could and we should encourage very close ties with perhaps um, realigned Scandinavian countries. I think that would be good for us and good for them. One of the most uh, hilarious aspects of the coverage of the vote is all of the kind of cod psychology that we got. Um, it, it was almost impossible to read any European columnist uh, opining on Brexit without some reference to the British Empire, uh, which, as you know, Niall, no, nobody in Britain thinks about it. In fact, even when we had an empire, we, we didn't really talk about it very much. It was much more of a big deal abroad than in, in Britain, as, as Robert Toombs demonstrates in his in his extraordinary history. I mean. The, what all of that analysis misses, it falls at the first hurdle. Um, opinion polls about whether people liked the EU were fairly similar all across the European Union, right? Britain was not an outlier in being Eurosceptic. Uh, it, it was actually sort of fairly mid-table. We, we were less critical of Brussels than Greece or France, uh, more so than maybe Germany, but but we were, you know, we were not an outlier. So why why was Britain different? Two really obvious things. First of all, we were the country that had the referendum, right? As Emmanuel Macron said at the time, if we'd had a referendum in France, we'd have probably voted to leave as well. And second, it was feasible for us to leave because we hadn't joined the euro. Those two things explain what happened. It, it wasn't some you know, peculiar sense of xenophobia that, uh, in fact, on the contrary, if you look at almost any surveys of opinion about openness to immigration, openness to, 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 to trade and foreign investment, uh, Britain is about the most uh, kind of liberal country, tolerant country uh, and internationalist in, in Europe. I do feel the EU has missed a trick here. They could have responded to Brexit by trying to, to reform themselves. But they absolutely wouldn't countenance doing that, right? So, so after the result came in, I was still in Brussels, I was still a member of the European Parliament. There were, there were two or three kind of accepted uh, responses to Brexit. One was incredulity. Oh, they're never actually gonna do this, forget it, you know. Uh, one was rage, lied to, you know, ignorant working class oafs lied to by unscrupulous demagogues. Uh, and the third was kind of contempt. Yeah, you do this and then see what happens to you, <laughs> right? The one response that was absolutely unacceptable, that you never heard from anyone in any position of authority was, oh, I wonder why they voted Lee. <laughs> you know, I, wonder, I wonder whether we might have played that differently. I wonder whether we're unpopular with other countries too. I wonder whether there's anything we might do to, to improve. Not a bit of it. 
not a bit of it. Rather than engage in the slightest bit of self-analysis or self-criticism, they fell back on this sort of extraordinary psychological denial that it was Russian money, it was evil tabloids, it was, you know, you know somehow a stolen result because they couldn't bring themselves to accept that people might have had well-founded criticisms of a remote, corrupt, and self-serving institution. And I'm afraid that in responding in that way, they've made, if you like, future Brexits by other countries almost inevitable. You're on mute. <laughs> Apologies. On that very rousing note, I, I think uh, that unfortunately, as we're out of time, uh, I'm going to have to bring our, our discussion to uh, to a close. Uh, but this has been an absolutely brilliant discussion. I'm most grateful to our, our tremendous uh, panelists, Douglas Carswell, Matthew Elliott, uh, Lord Hannon, uh, three key figures in the Vote Leave campaign. And thanks to their work, Britain is now a truly free uh, country, free to the shackles of, of the European Union. And, and today we on the fifth anniversary of the 2016 referendum, we celebrate uh, Brexit. Uh, Brexit is without a doubt a, you know, a tremendous event uh, for the, the US-UK special relationship as well and for strengthening that, that relationship. Uh, I very much hope that uh, uh, Douglas, Matthew and, and Dan can join us in person at Heritage at some stage in the, uh, in the next uh, few, few months as all of the restrictions end on both sides of the Atlantic. Again, most grateful to, to our three fantastic panelists for a, a tremendous uh, discussion. And thank you as well to everyone who's joined us on both sides of the Atlantic. We hope you can join us again for future uh, events, and we look forward to keeping in touch. Uh, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Niall. Thank you, Heritage.